I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode of The Trade Guys, we break down the U.S. Commerce Department's latest decision on lumber imports from Canada. Plus, we discuss the countervailing duty case over Tara imports from Vietnam, South Korea, Taiwan, and Thailand. The Trade Guys also talk about congressional versus executive authority in the latest update on the WTO TRIPS waiver. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Good morning, Trade Guys. I am back for another episode, and we have some interesting news to get through today. But before we get into it, Scott, I'll let you say a few words. Thanks, Jasmine. First, I want to reaffirm the fact that we have a terrific audience. We have great listeners, and one of our regular listeners and subscribers was kind enough to point out a mistake I made last week. And so I'd like to start off by correcting that. I try to do do a decent job of this, and one when in error, I'll retract. So in any case, one of the things I said last week when we were talking about the USMCA labor dispute that it came up, I referenced the fact that or said that the labor chapter uh, was not reciprocal, that it was a separate agreement. That's incorrect. The chap- labor chapter itself is a tripartite agreement where the obligations are binding on all three parties. What I should have said, and our listener was uh, pleasantly corrected me, is that what's different is the dispute settlement mechanisms. In an annexed dispute settlement chapter, there is for labor, uh, the right to organize specifically, there's what's called a rapid response mechanism. And this one is two separate annexes, one U.S.-Mexico and the other Canada-Mexico. So it's unusual in that respect. It is intended to... uh, get to action faster. Uh, The way that does that is that it uh, has a standing roster of essentially arbitrators. They have compressed timelines, but most important changes, disputes are initiated by what's called a good faith basis belief. And that's what initiated this case uh, at GM Mexico. So it'll still be interesting to watch. It's a novel mechanism. Dispute settlement can be very frustrating and time consuming. So we'll see if this is a solution. But my apologies for the error, and I thanked thanks to the alert listener. So uh, time to get on to the new business. Great. And I'm sure we'll be following the issue moving forward, so be sure to listen out for updates. Last Friday, the U.S. Commerce Department recommended an increase in preliminary tariffs on softwood lumber imports from Canada. They recommended increasing the countervailing and anti-dumping rates to 18.32%, which is more than double from the original 8.99%. Canadians are pretty upset with this decision, but what's the story here? Why did the Commerce Department recommend this increase? Well, let me start with explaining the law and the process. Uh, I think sometimes people people think in these matters that this is sort of a discretionary statute. And thanks to a lot of the things that Trump did, I think people sort of concluded that these things operate by presidential whim. This is part of the law that does not. It is not optional and not discretionary. If someone alleges that uh, they're a victim of, of dumping, which means basically selling below the home market price or selling below the cost of your production, wherever it is you made it, or if somebody alleges that they're, uh, the importer has benefited from a subsidy by another government, then a whole mechanism starts at the Commerce Department and at the International Trade Commission 
to determine whether or not that's true. But basically, the Commerce Department looks at the facts and determines whether there is a subsidy, and if so, how much, and determines if dumping has occurred, and if so, how much. And then the International Trade Commission, which is an internet independent body, determines whether or not the, the American complainant uh, has been injured by imports that have benefited from the dumping or the subsidy. And so if you're the American, you have to prove two things. You have to prove that something bad has happened, dumping or subsidy, and you have to prove you've been injured by it, not by a recession, not by an earthquake, but by reason of the imports that have been dumped or subsidized. And the lumber case goes back decades, actually, and has been frequently fought out. But one element of the law is that the law is sort of a a post kind of a retroactive law in the sense that every year the department looks back at the previous actual entries compared to the estimated duties and decides what the duty going forward will be based on what happened uh, in the past and determines uh, whether more money is due because the actual dumping was in excess of the previous uh, estimated amount or whether money should be refunded if the actual dumping was uh, or subsidy was less than what commerce had previously determined. So what commerce was doing uh, was conducting a normal administrative review of what had been going on. And in this case, they concluded that what had been going on was uh, more dumping and more subsidizing than they had previously calculated. Uh, so they raised the amount to reflect their view of what the actual amount of, of dumping and subsidization is. And that will uh, continue until the next administrative review uh, when they'll do it all again. So sometimes it goes up, sometimes it goes down. But it's not a uh, it's, this is not a policy decision. You know, the, the, the people at the Commerce Department with the green eye shades and the calculators sit down and examine all the evidence and they take input from both sides. So the Canadians can say, this is what we think it is. And the Americans, of course, can allege whatever they want. Uh, and then commerce comes to a, a conclusion. And this is not something that the president gets to review. Uh, I mean, this is a preliminary judgment on the part of the commerce department. So what happens now is that both sides will come in and say they got it wrong. The Americans will come in and say that it wasn't high enough. And the Canadians will come in and say it was way too high. Uh, and so there'll be another round of, of evidence submitted, another round of argument, and the uh, final uh, judgment will come out, it's supposed to be in se September, but it might get extended till November, and then we'll see what the, uh, what the numbers are then. I'm sometimes asked, why don't they just settle all this, you know, have a negotiation, because that tends to be what happens with big cases. Um, and they have in the past on this. The way the law works, there's a little quirk in the law, and that is, you know, once you've made an anti-dumping finding and there's an anti-dumping duty uh, on the books or a subsidy finding and a subsidy countervailing duty on the books, these cases don't go away very, very easily. Uh, they go away if the Commerce Department at some point determines that uh, there's no longer any dumping going on or if the ITC determines that uh, the American Party would not be injured if the dumping duties were removed. But while the thing is in progress, the only way to get rid of it is if the complaining party, which means the Americans, come in and ask the Commerce Department to suspend the investigation. And if the Commerce Department is asked to suspend uh, the investigation, then it can enter into a negotiation with the Canadians to discuss the ways that Canadians can modify their behavior 
in order to allow the uh, what would be is called a suspension agreement, uh, in which case in which the department suspends the duties and suspends the investigations, and the Canadians agree to do certain things. To be blunt about it, usually it's a price fixing agreement. The Canadians agree not to sell, in this case, their lumber below a certain agreed upon amount. And based on that, uh, the case is suspended, the investigation is suspended, and the U.S. tariffs are suspended. Uh, and that has happened. That's happened in lumber before. But note that it happened because the, the U.S. industry asked for, the, for that discussion to take place and asked for that decision to be made. The U.S. industry in the lumber case later on, the first time around, came back and said, we want to unsuspend the agreement. We don't think the agreement is serving our interests anymore. And so commerce, by law, has to reinstate the case uh, and then reimpose the duties. And that, that happened. So the government can't simply unilaterally decide that it wants to end the case unless it feels it can determine that dumping is no longer occurring or that it uh, convinced the ITC that injury is no longer occurring, uh, the American uh, industry has to come in and ask for a suspension. And this time around, they've not yet done so. Uh, they might. Long-winded explanation, but it, I think it's important people understand this is not uh, you know, a whimsical thing that, that uh, the government just does because it's mad at the Canadians this week. It's a very detailed law that's been in operation for a long time. Bill's right that this thing has been in place. I think the cases on softwood lumber with Canada go back to the early 1980s, maybe 1982 or something like that. But I would note that it's particularly bad timing for the ultimate customers of uh, softwood lumber, that is home builders and ultimately home buyers. Just the backdrop for me in this case is, I think, important to look at. Lumber is sold, you know, much as oil is sold in barrels and each industry has its own different measure. The measure in lumber is board feet or 1,000 board feet. And so uh, that's, the, that's the price of finished construction lumber. Uh, so if you look at lumber prices over the long haul, typically it's a $200 to $400 per 1,000 board feet. There's been a recent spike, and the recent high has been over $1,600 per 1,000 board feet. That's a four, fourfold increase versus what had been typical for the past several years. Well, what's going on? A couple of things. First, one COVID effect that we've talked about a lot has been that goods have done just fine and services had a lot of contraction during the economy. If you look at that from a consumer standpoint, consumers had, had money, whether because they continued to work or because they received government stimulus checks or whatever it might be, but they were unable to buy vacations. They were unable to travel. They were unable to go out to eat. And so what they did, what did they do with the money? Well, they saved some of it. Savings actually did grow during the COVID shutdown. But a lot of people improved their homes. They built a home office, They, you know, so which takes lumber, all right? Or they moved from the city to the suburbs, which also spikes demand in single-family home construction, which also increases the demand for lumber. So I think that all those things together have us in a situation where lumber is extraordinarily expensive right at the moment. And uh, one of the unfortunate things about uh, dumping and subsidy law, in, from my point of view, is there's a forgotten person in this. There's a, there's a party with a stake in the outcome that is never considered, who is the final consumer. In this case, it's between the, the Canadian industry and the American industry, the producers of lumber in the United States. And nobody ever asks the home builders or the home buyers, 
their points of view on this. Uh, so it's an, it's an unusual situation. It happens all the time. It's it's a bad moment for high price. And, and but Bill's right. There there are not many. There's no discretion on the part of either the the agency itself, the Commerce Department, or or even the president. So it's uh, so lumber is going to get more expensive. Yeah, I want to defend the law for a minute. I mean, I, Scott's right. And there is a consumer impact because, of course, the, the point of the law is to allow redress against unfair actions. So this is not uh, simply a case of imports coming in and, you know, making the Americans unhappy. It's a case of imports coming in that are benefiting uh, from uh, subsidies or from economic behavior that is against the rules. And it's not only against U.S. law, it's against WTO rules, and it's against the laws of most countries. The Canadians, they have their own dumping and subsidy rules as well, uh, which they have not hesitated to apply against American companies that they think are dumping in Canada, which is which has happened. And the penalty is not a penalty in the sense that it's exactly punishment. The penalty is designed to offset the harm that's being done. So this is why the calculation is so thorough and takes so much time. What commerce has to do is determine what the amount of dumping was. And they just bumped it up to whatever Jasmine said a few minutes ago. That is then the duty is that amount. You know, it's not two or three times that amount as punishment. It's just designed to offset what's happening and thereby to level the playing field. Now, there are, there is an ocean of quibbling that goes, that, that arrives every time one of these cases goes through because both sides claim that the number is incorrect. Uh, and sometimes this ends up getting litigated. Sometimes it just ends up with the Commerce Department making a decision and everybody grumbling. So, you know, there's a lot of maneuvering that goes on, but the basic idea is, is simple. Let's offset a breach in the rules and level the playing field. So it seems like the Commerce Department has been quite busy recently because another issue that has come up is related to tires in Vietnam. Commerce announced their findings in a countervailing duty case over Vietnamese tire imports, which is the first time they've set a duty rate on the basis that currency undervaluation is a countervailable subsidy. So again, there's quite a lot of terms being thrown around here, countervailing duties, subsidies, currency undervaluation. Can you guys break down what's going on here? Well, look, Bill can handle the, the law. He's the expert on that. Let me tell you what, what I think is going on in the market here, which is, well, first, when it comes to automobile tires, let's just take cars and light trucks because that's what most people drive. There, there are actually two markets for tires. There's what's called the OE or original equipment market. And that's when you buy a new car, it comes with tires. At least all the cars I bought came with tires. But the original equipment market uh, is supplied to the manufacturer. It's delivered with the car. It's done on a whole series of whether bulk negotiations or engineering specifications or whatever. But about there's about 75 million tires a year that are part of that original equipment market. Now, the much larger share, roughly 250 million, for cars and light trucks are what's called replacement tires. So OE or original equipment comes with a vehicle. Replacement is because cars last, uh, median age of, the car, of a car on the highway is 10 years and tires wear out. So there's actually more replacement tires than there are original equipment tires. So two, of that 250 million tires a year that are sold in the replacement market, a lot of them are imported, almost 70%, roughly speaking, 175 million are imported. So the big chunk of imports in the U.S. market 
are these replacement tires. Some of them from US or European or Japanese brand name manufacturers produced elsewhere. Now, before Tariff Man, China was the leading source of imports. And so companies like Cooper and Continental and Bridgestone had facilities in China that produced their specification tires, sold in the US market. They were good value. Consumers seemed to like them. China developed a very large market share. President Trump, when he was looking for things to put tariffs on to make the China relationship of what he saw it as, as a little more fair. Tires were an obvious one to do that. With tariffs on Chinese imports of tires to the United States, tires produced elsewhere in East Asia, so call it uh, Taiwan, Thailand, Vietnam, and throw South Korea in there, their tires on an import basis became more competitive and took market share of the, those imported replacement tires. And uh, wouldn't you know it, the wave action hits, and uh, in at the end of Tariff Man's uh, tenure in the White House, 2020, there was a, an anti-dumping case filed against, guess who, South Korea, Taiwan, Thailand, and Vietnam. <laughs> and so the very beneficiaries, uh, at least from as a share of imports, from the original 2017 China tariffs. And then the next step, the step, Jasmine, you mentioned, is uh, a currency-based subsidy case against Vietnam. So that's where the bidding stands. And, uh, you know, basically, from a market standpoint, we have a water balloon that we keep squeezing. And the balloon distorts, but it stays the same volume. So That's the analogy I was going to use. Well, I can't resist saying Scott's cars may come with tires. But the last time I bought one, they tried to sell me uh, a car without any spare tire. And uh, not even one of the cheesy little tiny ones that, that, that they give you. They, what they tried to say was, you know, we're going to give you an air pump instead of a fifth tire. And I, I rebelled and said, you know, if you want me to buy the car, I need a, I need a real tire, not, not an air pump. And I think that the wisdom of that was demonstrated last year when I got a flat tire. And I can tell you the air pump would not have done any good. In, in that particular case, I would just uh, say, uh, you know, going back to what Jasmine said, commerce has been busy because this was, you know, a, a complicated case against uh, four different countries and multiple producers within the countries. If you want to put it in context, Vietnam got most of the headlines for a reason I'll get to in a minute, but they actually got off relatively easy. Uh, the dumping duties for Taiwan, Korea, and Thailand were in the double digits, and in one case, triple digits, over 100% in the case of one uh, Taiwanese company. Whereas in the case of Vietnam, uh, the dumping duties were all zero for all of the producers except one, where it was 22 or so percent. Uh, and that was one that didn't cooperate in the investigation and didn't supply any, any data, which then allowed the Commerce Department to use um, what are called adverse facts available, which in other words, the information that's available to them, which is usually the information that's provided by the complaining party. But Vietnam made the news because commerce also found subsidies in the case of Vietnam. And part of the subsidy they found was based on the allegation that the Vietnamese currency, the dong, was undervalued. And this was, um, the first time, according to the Commerce Department, that they've made that an affirmative finding that an undervalued currency is a subsidy. And those of you that are into the weeds of this stuff know this is a debate that's been going on for 20 years and up in at least 20 years. And up until the Trump administration, previous presidents had always refused to argue that 
currency uh, manipulation or currency undervaluation constituted a subsidy. Uh, and the reason they didn't is because both the WTO rules and U.S. law says that a subsidy has to be specific. That is, it has to be provided to a particular sector or a particular industry or even, I suppose, a particular company. And that the subsidies that applied across the board uh, don't count. So, for example, you know, the, the Trump uh, tax uh, corporate tax cuts would not be considered a subsidy by other countries because they applied to everybody. And the view has been until the Trump administration that currency undervaluation, because it applies to everybody that uses the currency, is not specific and therefore not a subsidy. The Trump administration reversed that thinking and the Commerce Department issued a rule arguing that, that they could determine that subsidy undervaluation was a subsidy, that the group of, uh, or the, the specificity criterion was met by the logic that the category of, of beneficiaries of the subsidy were all traded goods. And that was specific enough uh, for the Commerce Department. Personally, I think that's ridiculous. And this will, if the Vietnamese choose to litigate this at, at the uh, WTO, I think they'll win. Uh, if they choose to litigate in U.S. courts, they might win too. We'll, uh, we'll see. They, since this just happened, it's not clear what, uh, what they'll do. But it made news because it was, you know, the first imposition of this kind of thing. And it was handled via accepting what the Treasury Department said was the amount of undervaluation, which they put in the uh, upper 4% range, as I recall. And the actual amount of subsidy was a bit more than that. Depending on the company, it was between uh, 6 and 8%. So there were other subsidy elements too, apparently, in addition to currency. But it was a novel finding. And the consequence is, I think, uh, the consequences, I think, are two. One, it'll probably be litigated, if not in U.S. court, then in WTO. And second, uh, it'll probably encourage other companies to uh, file these complaints uh, against anybody that they think is manipulating their currency. And that's not just a non-market thing. You know, if you look at Treasury's periodic, uh, every six-month reports about currency uh, manipulation, you'll find that uh, they, in the last few years, they've generally con considered one of the worst offenders to be Switzerland, uh, which is not a non-market economy, economy. And I'm not sure that that vulnerable to anti-countervailing duty complaints. But, you know, what commerce has done opens a, a, a potentially big door here. Uh, and we may see in a lot more cases, and it'll be interesting to see how they proceed and how the litigation proceeds. At one point, Switzerland was kind of the, the poster child for giving up the game because uh, what caused them to be identified as a currency manipulator once was, this is a few years back, was uh, the very strong Swiss franc versus the euro and the importance of, of the rest of Europe as, the, as an export market. They basically came out and said, okay, for the moment, we're pegging the Swiss franc uh, to the euro to help our exporters. Well, that fits our definition of currency manipulation. So. so which country will be the beneficiary of the Commerce Department's decision? And how does this affect U.S. consumers? Does it not until there's a final decision that's been made after litigation completes? Or is there any short-term effects that we might see? Well, keep in mind that the Vietnam currency-related subsidy offset is a pretty small number. So it's, it's, a, it's a single digit tariff at this point, at least at preliminary stage. So it's not a major distortion. And uh, I think really what will determine 
U.S. consumer pricing is which of these tariffs stay in place and which are removed, whether China or Taiwan, Thailand, Vietnam, or, or some mix of them. This is a final decision as far as the number is concerned. What's not final, if you go back to my mini lecture about the dumping rules, is that, remember, you have to prove two things. You have to prove injury as well. And that has not been finally settled yet. The ITC preliminarily determined injury in the case of these four countries. But uh, their final vote, I believe, is going to be either in June or July. And that then will be the end. If they find no injury then all the duties go away and the case is moot. If they find that the American uh, petitioners have been injured by reason of any of these imports, then they can, um, then the duties that we were just announced yesterday uh, will continue. The way the law works is that duties went into effect months ago uh, because they go into effect when there's a preliminary determination, but it's all tentative. And if the case goes away next month with a negative vote, the duties that have been collected since the preliminary determination will all get refunded. But importer liability attached much earlier. So this is not going to be a huge change in the marketplace right now, except to the extent that the duties are maybe different from the preliminary ones. And I don't know if they're materially different. The bigger losers, I think, are Taiwan, South Korea and Thailand uh, because their numbers were much larger. And, you know, when you get dumping duties in the neighborhood of 20 percent, that makes a difference in the marketplace because that means that tire is likely to go up. Maybe not that full amount, but a substantial amount. Uh, Vietnam, even though they got all the headlines, um, actually got off relatively lightly for the reason Scott said. You know, the dumping duties for most of their companies were zero and the, the subsidy, uh, the countervailing duty was single digits, which is not not all that much. So they they actually, you know, I, maybe they won't complain. Maybe they won't appeal. We'll see. Okay, well, we'll definitely keep an eye out for any updates to this case. And the Senate has also been busy working on the U.S. Innovation and Competitiveness Act, formerly the Endless Frontiers Act. And here we see the TRIPS waiver issue that we've been following merge with the China bill. So what's the latest news here? What's been going on? Can I start by being a little cynical? <laughs> Look, I think the uh, Biden administration's move to side with uh, South Africa and India on a wa waiver, an intellectual property waiver, they were trying to have their cake and eat it too. They basically forced other countries with IP, strong IP, like the European Union, like uh, the UK, like Japan, to defend intellectual property at the WTO. Meanwhile, the, the administration got, uh, got a couple smiley face emojis from uh, from their progressive allies uh, domestically and and from the global south internationally. But on closer inspection, it's pretty clear to everyone that the TRIPS waiver, as it would be called, the WTO uh, Trade-Related Intellectual Property Standard waiver for uh, vaccine patents, does zero for any patient in the next year or so. You know, frankly, this is a supply chain problem. It is not that we don't, that the intellectual property is the is the critical path item to get uh, expanded vaccine distribution of production. It's not even manufacturing capacity. It's precursor ingredients to the vaccine production system. And it's the distribution system getting, as we've said before, getting the jabs in the arms uh, on the distribution end. Uh, so why you need an intellectual property waiver is completely unclear. 
So in any case, that my cynicism is, is this thing has now slowed down enough to get, for Congress to invoke its Article One power and uh, question the decision making about why why they were excluded from this and whether or not it's a wise idea. Uh, so for you know, so it's, it's still unresolved at the WTO thanks to uh, Europe, the UK, Japan, and other defenders of intellectual property. But that's where we stand now. Well, and it's sort of moot because the amendment that, that uh, Jasmine began with was not agreed to. They needed 60 votes, um, the way the Senate's operating these days, and they got 53, which was a majority. But, uh, you know, it, it was a filibusterable item, and that meant they needed 60, and they didn't. They, and by agreement, they agreed that they needed 60 and didn't get it. It is a kind of an interesting exercise in the sort of the, the eternal struggle between Article One and Article Two of the Constitution. The essence of the amendment said that if the United States agrees to this at uh, the WTO, that would constitute, in essence, a trade agreement that Congress would have the right to review and approve before it could be implemented, uh, at least as far as the United States is concerned. And as I said, it's academic because they didn't get enough votes. But it's, it, it would be interesting to see what the implications of that are more, more broadly. The TRIPS provision, this is trade-related intellectual property provision, has been in place since the WTO began, since the Uruguay round. And the, the provision that permits a waiver, if it's agreed to by the, the, the membership, has been in, in existence at that time, too. And other waivers, not very many, but other waivers, I think one or two, have been granted over the years uh, without Congress insisting that it had to uh, write a review. And it does kind of raise the question of whether, you know, while certainly the initial uh, provision in TRIPS and the initial waiver provision were subject to congressional review and were approved as part of the Uruguay round, does that mean that every time a waiver has to be considered under a previously approved procedure, Congress should come back and vote on it again? I think that's a, an interpretation of their Article One authority, which is a stretch, um, but it also won't be tested because the amendment didn't have enough votes. But it also reflects, I think, as Scott said, that there is, I think, a widespread feeling that the administration made a mistake in supporting the waiver. I share Scott's cynicism. I think it was a, a clever Machiavellian move that allows them to, to look good in the developing world. Uh, and to make the Europeans who have been resisting also uh, look bad. But you have to read the fine print, too, which is where this is going to play out. Um, when Ambassador Tai announced the decision, she said they were going to support a vaccine waiver. If you look at what South Africa and India actually, India actually proposed, it was for a lot more than vaccines. Uh, it was for a whole bunch of other things that went along with it. And it, Ambassador Tai made clear that she was talking about a narrower waiver than what India and South Africa wanted. And she has gone back to the Indians and South Africans and encouraged them to come up with a narrower uh, request. And they did narrow their request, but they didn't narrow it very much. And so, you know, what's going to happen, and it will be at the, the TRIPS Council, which meets June 8th and 9th, where I think this the next step will be, although there's an informal meeting next week where they'll probably indicate what direction things are moving in. First of all, the countries have to agree whether they actually want to have a negotiation over the wording of the waiver or whether they just want to block it. Now, the U.S. has said we won't block it, but the U.S. has also made clear there needs to be a negotiation over wording. So we'll see how that plays out. My guess is that uh, 
it will play out what's either that somebody else will block it, in which case the United States has gotten someone else to do his dirty work for it, or everybody will agree to have a negotiation and the negotiation will take so long that the pandemic will be over by the time they reach an agreement and it won't matter. So stay tuned. We will uh, reflect on this uh, probably uh, following the two uh, TRIPS Council meetings. Yes, and thematically, the struggle between the executive and the and the legislative branch goes on. Clearly, that that came up all the time in the Trump administration. It's like, where did this Section Two Thirty Two tariff on steel come from? And the answer to the Congress was, you gave the president the authority. And uh, reclaiming authority is actually quite difficult, whether because of the sixty vote threshold, just getting the Senate to agree, or the sixty seven vote threshold for overriding a veto. So uh, it, that, that struggle will never end. When uh, I had a working group uh, last year that looked at uh, trade promotion authority amendments, you know, forecasting at some point we would get back to that. And most of the discussion revolved around this question, which is what agreements actually should be reviewed by Congress and what should not. And the disposition of the group was to significantly expand the universe of agreements uh, that had to be reviewed. I mean, the reality is there's lots of tiny little agreements that Congress probably doesn't want to spend its time on, you know. But And so the group didn't want to say all agreements, every agreement needs to have a congressional vote. But uh, they also took note of the fact that Ambassador Lighthizer was, I think, uh, effective in constructing agreements that he could argue correctly did not require congressional review because they didn't require any laws to be changed. And... Uh, our little working group, which was mostly uh, private sector people and a lot of former negotiators, uh, felt that that uh, essentially that Ambassador Lighthizer was taking advantage of the way the law was written and that congressional review should be broader than, than what uh, the current law permits. So another thing to watch is we'll see how this plays out if and when they get to TPA renewal. Yes. So the ongoing saga means that the trade guys continue to have a justification for our ongoing existence. Which means we'll be back next week. Right, Jasmine? Yep, that's right. And thanks so much, Bill and Scott, for your helpful insight today. I definitely learned a lot. So we'll talk again next week. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.